Hi, my name is Jovi. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Bed Stories. Crime Stories. <gasps> that was like the best one we've done. Really? Because on my end, it's like separated. No, dude, that was like the best one we did. Okay. I'll also, take your- Bed Crime Stories. Also, Bed Crime <laughs> Stories is a true crime podcast where we pour ourselves in drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. I just realized I didn't do that on the last episode. No, no, you oh, didn't. Well. Hopefully, you guys. Hopefully, you guys <laughs> listened to the last episode. It wasn't like, "What is this episode all about? What podcast been, is this?" I've been listening for over a year, and I have no idea what this is about. Episode sixty-seven. I'm lost. <laughs> or whatever episode was last week. I don't know. I mean, or um, if you were a first-time listener, hopefully you stayed around. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Hopefully, hopefully figured it out from the yeah. all the descriptions that are online and all that fun yeah. stuff. But. I mean, we try to be as organized and thorough as possible, but we only you know, human. We only for, human. I'm only human. You know, we're we're doing this all on the fly. We have minimal scriptage. Mm-hmm. This is all from our braniums, other than like mm-hmm. the stories itself is the only thing that like we have written down. Everything else is just off the top of the noggins. Mm-hmm. And we're old. we're old and we record the episode at the end of a work day so i've already had a function with the full brain capacity for eight hours and now you know you get what you get my friends and it's like after a work day in the middle of the week so middle of the week yeah the the brain the brain capacity is minimal at best minimal at minimal best yes minimal 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 um so that's kind of where we're at but okay so this episode is going to be a episode um and this episode is going to be jovi said that this is a a pretty lengthy story so we're actually going to bypass kind of our intro convo Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. jump right into into ta-ta-ta into tonight's bed crime story so jovi is going to uh to take it away yes i'm taking it i'm I'm literally grabbing it and taking it pulling it and taking it and running out and running away um and also i just want to remind you guys that this is another zoom episode so you may hear weird things and i apologize we're learning on the fly so all I want to do is zoom, a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. Just shake your rope. There um, it is. <clears throat> so you know we're just we're just going with it. So you're mm-hmm. along for this ride because we're old. <laughs> yes, technology is not our thing. But tonight, this story was actually um, it's one that I decided to do because of you, Charlie. Because of something you said <gasps> the oh, other way. Inspired yes. you. Yes, you're not. Inspired you. <laughs> and plus, we we've been doing male killers, male serial killers. Mm, like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. time for a female. It's time that I do a female. And I think Charlie knows where I'm going with this. It's one of two. It's one of two. Mm-hmm. So it's either the American Boogie Woman, Eileen Wuornos, or it's Dorothea Puente. Which either one, I'm down with. Nope, you were correct the first time. Yes, American Boogie Woman. <laughs> Today, I will be doing the story of Eileen oh, Warnos, America's Boogie yeah. Woman. Fuck yeah! <laughs> and it's funny because as I was, you know, doing the story, I was like, "What am I going to name this episode?" Because I'd love to do America's Boogie Woman because it's just funny now at this point. But yep. 
they call her the damsel of death. And I really love that. Love that. So I love that. Maybe I'll do a combination of both. American American boogie damsel of death. (laughs) Boogie damsel. She's a boogie damsel. Boogie damsel of death. Yes. Figure it out. But yes. Do you talk about how she marries like a geriatric widower? Yes. Nice. So excited to learn more about this because an hour and a half of a terrible, terrible television movie was really not enough. Well, I promise um, it's not going to be too terrible because it's no. not going to be weird actors and actresses no. and bad acting. So, and it's Jovi. Hello. Hello. I mean, mm-hmm. although my last story was nowhere near my favorite that I've ever done. So I apologize, but this one will be better. Okay. So my sources for this week is our new favorite thing in the entire world, Criminal Minds Wiki, because it is the best. It's basically the best. Yeah, it really is. Capital mm-hmm. punishment in context.org. Dang. Okay. Like that site was very, mm, it was a smart people version where like mm-hmm. they were talking about like actual um, like terminology and stuff that's used in courts and punishment and this, that, and the other thing. It was, nice. very, it was pretty cool to read. Um, mm-hmm. And I also used a article that I found on clarksprosecutor.org called Eileen Warnos, Killer Who Preyed on Truck Drivers by Marley McLeod. And it's an amazing article and I'm not going to lie. It was written so beautifully and so chronologically correct that Mm -hmm. a majority of this is from there. It was just, it was just perfect. Um, so yeah, that with a little bit of criminal minds and capital punishment and context.org shuffled in. So awesome. All right, go ahead. Tell me all about the damsel of death, which I love that by the way. I, I do too. I really do. Big fan. Big okay. Fan. Eileen Carol Warnos was born on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. And she grew up in the nearby area of Troy, which was like kind of to the South. Um, Diane Warnos, Eileen's mother, married leo dale Pittman when she was 15 and had two children with him so eileen and her older brother keith Mm. their marriage didn't last long uh diane divorced leo less than two years into the marriage and a few months before eileen was born Mm. interesting leo was a convicted child molester and a sociopath who was who was strangled in prison in 1969 yeah her mother found the responsibilities of motherhood to be unbearable and in 1960 she abandoned her children both of them were then adopted by their grandparents so they Mm. were adopted by um, her mom's parents interesting Mm -hmm. Lori and Britta Warnos raised both Eileen and Keith along with their own children they didn't tell Eileen and Keith that they were actually their grandchildren Oh, yeah, that happened to Ted Bundy. Look how well that turned out. Yeah, exactly. he is the American boogeyman after all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, that will never not be funny, by the way. Never, Just never say. not be funny. I mean, our listeners might disagree, but I think right. it's hilarious. No. I mean, they will disagree until they watch it themselves. And then they'll be like, For you know real. what? They write, they write. Yeah. Uh, didn't. Okay. Eileen discovered the truth at age 12. Dang. Oh, that's a tough age to yeah, figure that out. Because that's like right before being a teenager and you're already at that rebellious stage. Mm-hmm. Um, that information did not help an already troublesome situation. Oof. 
<laughs> Lori Warnos drank heavily and was strict with their children. When they discovered the truth about their quote unquote parents really being their grandparents, they rebelled against him quickly becoming incorrigible, which is such a phenomenal incorrigible. <laughs> like I was like, EZA. it just reminds me of EZA. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's just, it's, I just love that word. Mm-hmm. During her adolescent years, Warnos had several sex partners, including her brother. Ooh, Ooh. I did not fucking know that. Mm-hmm. Shite. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Yife. Yeah. So she's, she's not having a great life so far. No, no. Her grandfather molested her and she was later raped by one of his, um, one of his friends, which resulted in her becoming pregnant at age 14. And at that point, they sent her to an unwed mother's home for the duration of her pregnancy. Wow. The staff found her hostile, uncooperative, and unable to get along with her peers. She delivered a baby boy who was put up for adoption in January of 1971. Hmm. In July of that same year, Britta Warnos died. Diane, who was her biological mother, offered to let Mm -hmm. Eileen and Keith come live with her in Texas, but they declined. Eileen, who was known to her friends as Lee, grew up a petty criminal and a sex worker and was arrested for, among other things, drunk driving, disorderly conduct, firing a 22 from a vehicle, assault, armed robbery, grand theft auto, and was also suspected of stealing a revolver, a revolver with ammo. Jesus, Mary and Giuseppe. So she, uh, she had quite the record, if you will. That's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, no yeah. joke. No Big joke. understatement you got there. I mean, she's missing arson. And I mean, other than that, yeah, at she, this point, she'd have like, she'd run the gambit if she had that. Right. Right. Cause I mean, <clears throat> at, well, at that point it was just that, but then you figure murder would soon be added to that. And then mm-hmm. she would just need arson and she's, she's good to go. She got them all. She yeah, won the uh, crime house. jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Over the next few years, Keith died of throat cancer. Mm. Lori committed suicide and Eileen hitchhiked her way to Florida. She then met and married. (laughs) Yeah, really. I mean, Florida has enough. Florida has enough. Yeah, for real. Nobody else that is going to be. We're full. It's (laughs) full. You're not allowed to cross into our state. No, no. That's that's a no, no. Seats taken. Yes. She then met and married an elderly man named Louis Fell, who had a comfortable income from a bunch of railroad railroad stocks mm-hmm. the yes, marriage he did. <laughs> he, he did the marriage was short lewis obtained a restraining order and an annulment after she was arrested for hurling a cue ball at a bartender's head back home in michigan i didn't get that far in the movie <laughs> <laughs> shut it off before that happened <laughs> If they even covered it, if they, if they even covered it, they probably would have stopped it. Like right when shit was about to get real, they're like, you know what? This is enough that you need to know. This is all you need to know. Yeah, pretty much. He claimed she had blown a good amount of his money and beaten him with his cane when he was not forthcoming with even more cash. Oof. In my head, all I was picturing was like, um, you remember the grandfather from Rugrats? yeah <laughs> I, I just imagined her beating 
an old man Aww. that looks like that. That's sad. That's <laughs> I don't know where sad. my brain goes. I don't ask questions. It just does what it wants. <laughs> it just it just happens. It just happens. I'm sorry. Keith's life insurance had paid off well for Eileen. She received $10,000, which was, of course, gone within two months. She drifted back to Florida and started a decade of failed relationships and small-time crime, forgery, theft, and a rather ridiculous armed robbery that put her in prison for a short period of time. From time to time, she solicited sex for money, but even as an exit-to-exit interstate sex worker, she was not a hot commodity. Mm. I mean, not surprised there. But that's just like so mean to say. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And yeah. I, I don't be, I'm not trying to be mean by agreeing, but because I know that she's a piece of shit, it's kind of like. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, when she met 24-year-old Tyra Moore at a Daytona gay bar in 1986, Eileen was lonely and angry and ready for something new. Mm. For a while, it was great. Ty loved her and didn't leave her. She even quit her job as a motel maid for a while and allowed Eileen to support her with her sex work earnings. Their passion eventually cooled and money started to run short. Ty stayed with Eileen, following her from cheap motel to cheap motel with stints in old barns or in the woods in between. Eileen's market value as a sex worker which was never spectacular, fell even more. Their existence, meager as it was, became ever harder to maintain. Maintain, not maintain. 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 All right. So now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it all. Knit me and grit me. So Richard... Mallory, the middle-aged owner of a Clearwater, Florida electronics repair business, was known to close up shop abruptly and disappear for a few days at a time so that he could go on drinking and sex binges. I mean, at least he didn't keep the store open when he did it. I mean, that would be awkward. That would be awkward. I mean, it's very Florida, but it would be awkward. (laughs) He changed the locks to his apartment eight different times in three years. He kept employees at his business only long enough to clear the backlog of work that that accrued during one of his disappearances, and then he let them go once all his repair orders were caught up again. Wow. His only constants were alcohol, sex, and paranoia. So when he didn't show up to open a shop in early December of 1989, nobody thought much of it. It was typical behavior for him. Right. There, There was no one close enough to him to even notice that he was gone. It wasn't until his 1977 Cadillac was found a few days later outside Daytona that anyone knew that anything was amiss. Hmm. On December 13th of 1989, Jimmy Bonacci and James Davis were looking for scrap metal along a dirt road close to Interstate 95 in Volusia County, Florida. Instead of finding, quote unquote, good junk to sell, they found a body wrapped in a carpet. Fingerprints carefully taken from the badly decomposed hands proved that it was, in fact, Richard Mallory. Woof. Yeah. He had been killed with three shots from a 22. Several months of investigation into his hectic lifestyle and somewhat shady acquaintances produced no real leads. Initial suspicion revolved around a stripper who went by the name of Chastity. 
<laughs> but the evidence, what little of it there was, didn't add up, and his case wound up wound up going cold. Also, I would just like to say that Chastity is a great stripper name. It's really good. Yeah, like, I I dig it. I dig mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's not the damsel of death, but it's good. <laughs> nice. Was Eileen Chastity? No. No, 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 no. right? It does. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was a sh- they thought that they were suspicious that this stripper by the name of chastity was but it didn't pan out because gotcha uh, there was little to no evidence got it on may 5th 1990 the body of an unidentified male was found naked in brooks county georgia close to interstate 75 and that's just across the state line from florida I never knew that. I never knew that she had body show ups across state lines. Mm-hmm. My dog's real mad about that. She's real angry. <laughs> She's like, you know what? I've watched enough Criminal Minds to know that that makes it a federal case. <laughs> That's for the FBI now. That was amazing timing. <laughs> <laughs> that was the dog. That was not me. I promise you that was not me. Oh. <sighs> Um, but yeah, I think this is the only one uh, that was in Georgia. Uh, but hmm. I mean, it was Did not know that it was just across state line. Like it wasn't deep into Georgia. It was like kind of right there. But, right. But still, I had yeah. no idea. I had no clue. Yeah. You hmm. learned something. <laughs> Honestly, truthfully, like I know, I know Eileen Warnos and I know like dribs and drabs. Mm-hmm. This is one that I actually don't know all that much about. Oh, that's exciting. I like that. Mm-hmm. Woo-hoo. All right. Well, listen up. You're going to get taught. Okay. <laughs> I know a lot about her first marriage, but other than that. <laughs> Thanks to American that. boogie woman. Okay. <laughs> Two 22 caliber slugs were found in the remains and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation had no leads as to the identity of their mysterious corpse. Police initially suspected Matthew Cocking, who was a surveyor who had found the body um and they suspected him because he was known to carry a gun and use profound profanity and he threatened anyone who questioned him about his find or what have you the identification of the body on june 7th as that of david spears of bradenton florida cleared matthew spears had been a heavy equipment operator who was last seen on may 19th His truck was found shortly after that on Interstate 75 with the doors unlocked and the license plate missing. Meanwhile, 30 miles south in Pasco County, yet another naked body was found a few miles off Interstate 75. This one was discovered on June 6th and was so badly decomposed that the medical examiners were not able to obtain fingerprints and could not estimate the time of death. Oof. The nine bullets found in the remains were damaged by the decomposition, but were determined to have come from mm. a 22 caliber weapon. I'm sensing a theme here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pasco County detective Tom Muck had no immediate luck identifying his John Doe. And it was later determined to be Charles Carskadden, um, but had heard about the case in Citrus County. He notified Citrus County Sheriff's investigator Marvin Paget about the similarities and told him to stay in touch. Searching further for leads, he called the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and was told 
of their own mystery guest. Again, hmm. he noted the similarities, but didn't feel he had enough information to put together an investigation. Hmm. Interesting. But at, right. But at least somebody was starting to kind of put two and two together. Very true. So and got- at least they were actually um, notifying across mm-hmm. jurisdictions. Cause you, I mean, I know they this don't. was like late eighties, early nineties, but they still usually didn't. So that's, yeah. that's surprising. Yeah, no, I, I agree. On July 4th, a car careened off of state road 315 near orange drink, orange drinks. No, near orange, Spring- <laughs> orange Springs, Florida, and was stopped by some brush. Rhonda Bailey, who was sitting on her porch at the time, she watched the accident happen and said that two women clambered frantically from the car, throwing beer cans into the woods and swearing at each other. Dude. Yeah. The brown haired woman said little. The blonde whose arm was bleeding from an injury sustained in the crash did most of the talking. She actually begged uh, Rhonda not to call the police, saying that her father lived just up the road. Hmm. She and her companion got back in the car, which now had a smashed windshield and other damage, and got it out of the brush. The crippled vehicle didn't take them far, though. They abandoned it just down the road and began walking. Herbert Hewitt of the Orange Springs Volunteer Fire Department responded to a call about the accident and asked the two women if they had been the ones in the car. The blonde cursed at him and said no, they had not, and that they didn't want any help. So he left them alone and they walked on. Marion County's sheriff's deputies found the car where the woman had left it. It was a 1988 Pontiac Sunbird, gray with four doors. The glass in the front doors, as well as the windshield, were smashed. There were apparent bloodstains throughout the interior and the license plate was missing. Hmm. Uh, it was also missing from one of the previous victims as well. So, Which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. A computer search based on the VIN number revealed that the car belonged to Peter Symes, who had disappeared on June 7th after leaving his home in Jupiter, Florida, to visit relatives in Arkansas, Arkansas, but I like saying Arkansas. (laughs) Peter was a 65-year-old retired merchant seaman who devoted much of his time to a Christian outreach ministry. John Wisniewski of the Jupiter Police, who had been working the case since Peter was reported missing, sent out a nationwide teletype containing descriptions of the two women. He also sent a synopsis of the case and sketches of the women to the Florida Criminal Activity Bulletin. Then he waited. He was not very optimistic at this point about finding Peter alive, which I get. Smart. Yeah. I wouldn't be either. Mm Mm-hmm. Troy Burris left on his delivery route from Gilchrist Sausage early on the morning of July 30th. When he didn't return that afternoon, Gilchrist manager Johnny May Thompson started calling around and discovered that Troy hadn't shown up at his last few delivery stops. Late that Mm -hmm. night, she and her husband went out looking for him. At approximately 2 a.m., Troy's wife reported him missing. At 4 a.m., Marion County Sheriff's deputies found his truck on the shoulder of State Road 19, 20 miles east of Ocala. It was locked and the keys were missing. So was Troy. Mm. He was found five days later. A family out for a picnic in the Ocala National Forest happened upon his body in a clearing just off Highway 19, which was um, about eight miles from where his truck was found. Could you imagine? Could you imagine going out for a pleasant picnic? 
yeah, you're picking no. a basket and then yeah. coming across a dead body. I can't mm. even imagine. No, Yogi thanks. Bear didn't set me up for that. Nope, nope. And neither did Boo Boo. Mm. Hey, Boo Boo. Hey, Boo Boo. It's a dead body. <laughs> Time to get out of here. <sighs> so yeah, that's that's really shitty. I would never go on mm-hmm. a picnic again. I'm just saying. For for real. Never again. There's really no reason to eat outdoors anyway. No, no there's really not. Bugs and whatnot. Yeah. No thanks. The Florida heat and humidity had quickened the decomposition, making it impossible to identify the victim at the scene. But his wife identified his wedding ring. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. Um, he had been killed with two shots from a 22 caliber, one to the chest and one to the one to the back. Investigator John Tilly's initial suspect was a drifter named Curtis Michael Blankenship. He had been hitchhiking on Highway 19 the day of Troy's disappearance and was picked up close to the abandoned truck. It became evident as the investigation progressed, however, that Curtis was not involved. For the time being, Tilly had no more suspects. Hmm. Dick Humphreys never made it home from his last day of work at the Sumterville office of the Florida Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services. Mm. a protective investigator specializing in abused and injured children he was about to transfer to the department's ocala office he celebrated his 35th wedding anniversary on september 10th and on september 11th he disappeared on the evening of september 12th his body was found in marion county he'd been shot seven times six 22 caliber slugs were recovered from his body the seventh went through his wrist and was never found His car was found in late September in Suwannee County. About a month later, the nude body of Walter Gino Antonio was found on a logging road in Dixie County. 60-year-old Walter was a trucker, a sometime security guard, and a member of the reserve police. He had been shot four times with the 22. And he when he was found Mm. on November 19th, he'd been dead for less than 24 hours. His car was found five days later across Oof. the state in Brevard County. Captain Steve Beingar was commander of the Marion County Sheriff's Criminal Investigation Division, and he knew about the crimes in Citrus and Pasco counties. He could not ignore the similarities and was formulating a theory along with a multi-agency task force with representatives from counties where victims were found. No one stopped to pick up hitchhikers anymore. He reasoned. So the perpetrator or perpetrators of these crimes had to be initially non-threatening to the victims. He suspected women specifically. He suspected the two women had wrecked Peter Symes car and walked away. He turned to the press for help. In late November, Reuters ran a story about the killings, saying police were looking for the women. Papers across Florida picked up the story and ran it, along with police sketches of the women in question. It didn't take long for the leads to start pouring in, and by mid-December, police had several tips involving the same two women. A man in Homosassa Springs said the two women had rented a trailer for him from him about a year earlier. Their names were Tyra Moore and Lee. A woman in Tampa said the women had worked at her motel south of Ocala. Their names, she said, were Tyra Moore and Susan Blahovec. <laughs> and Anonymous caller mm. identified the women as Ty Moore and Lee Blahovec, who bought an RV in Homosassa Springs. Lee Blahovec was the dominant one, the caller said, a, and a truck stop sex worker. Both were lesbians. The mother mm-hmm. load, though, came from Port Orange near Daytona. 
Police there had been tracking the movements of Lee Blahovic and Tyra Moore and provided a detailed account of the couple's movements from late September to mid-December. They had stayed primarily at the Fairview Motel in Harbor Oaks, where Blahovic registered as Cammie Marsh Green. <laughs> it's, it's hard Jesus. to keep track because obviously she has multiple aliases. So I'm like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. They spent a bit of time, a bit of time. They spent a bit of time <laughs> living in a small apartment behind a restaurant very close to the Fairview, but they eventually returned to the motel. In early December, they left the Fairview. Blahovic slash Green returned alone and stayed until December 10th. A quick computer check gave driver's license and criminal record information on Tyra Moore, Susan Blahovic, and Cami Marsh Green. Moore had no real record breaking and entering charges against her in 1983 have been dropped blahovic had one trespassing arrest while green had no record at all additionally the photograph on blahovic's license did not match the one for green the green id was the one that paid off the best Lusa County officers checked area pawn shops and found that in Daytona, Cami Marsh Green had pawned a camera and a radar detector and had left the requisite thumbprint on the receipt. Oof. Those items had belonged to Richard Mallory. In Ormond Beach, she pawned a set of tools that matched the description of those taken from David Spears' truck. The thumbprint was the key. Jenny Earn of the Automated mm-hmm. Fingerprint Identification System found nothing on her initial computer search, but came to Volusia County and began to actually hand search through the fingerprint, the fingerprint records that were in that location. Within an hour, she found what she came for. The print showed up on a weapons charge and an outstanding warrant against a Lori Grotti. <laughs> that's like what? One, Dude. two, that's what? Three, four now? The yeah. third or fourth alias, yeah. A bloody palm print found in Peter Symes' sunburn matched Lori Grady's prints as well. All this information was sent to the National Crime Information Center. Responses came from Michigan, Colorado, and Florida. Lori Grody, Susan Blahovic, and Cami Marsh Green were all aliases for Eileen Carol Warnos. That's ridiculous, Dude. but wow. Yeah. The hunt for Warnos began on January 5th, 1991. Pairs of officers, including two undercover as Bucket and Drums, <laughs> who were drug dealers, I know, who were drug dealers down from Georgia, hit the streets, it. hoping to track her down. On the evening of January 8th, Mike Joyner and Dick Martin, in the roles as Bucket and Drums, <laughs> spotted her at the Port Orange Pub. <laughs> they meant for their takedown to develop gradually as they wanted an airtight case, but Port Orange police entered suddenly and took Warnos outside. So basically they fucked up the whole entire thing that night. That night. Good job, right. Buckets. Mike Joyner. Good job, Bucket. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't Bucket and Drum's fault. Sorry. It was the Port oh, Orange it was police. There. It yeah. was the cross fault, yeah. Mike, Mike Joyner mm. frantically phoned the command post at the Pirates Cove Motel where author where authorities, where authorities from six jurisdictions had come to work the case. This development wasn't because of a leak, they surmised. These were just cops doing their jobs, which, okay, but yeah, they were trying to do a sting operation. Come on, come on. 
Right, right. Bob Kelly of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. I apologize. I says that wrong the entire time. It's Volusia. <laughs> it's Volusia. Called the Port Orange Police Station and told them not to arrest Warnos under any circumstances. The word was relayed to the cops in the nick of time and Warnos returned to the bar. Joyner and Jeez. Martin struck up a conversation with her and bought her a few beers. She left the bar around 10 p.m., declining an offer for a ride. Once again, the cautious takedown was almost ruined. Two Florida Department of Law Enforcement officers pulled up behind Warnos as she walked down Ridgewood Avenue, following her with their lights off. Officers at the command post made a call and got the FDLE officers off the street and Warnos made it to her next destination, which was a biker bar called Last Resort. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Uh -huh. I mean... Is that ironic? <laughs> is that like too on the nose? I feel like that's like a little on the fucking. A little, nose. On, you know what I'm saying? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I wonder if it still exists. It does. It does. does I it? drove past it when we went to totally Daytona go. last time. I'll have to take a picture. We should totally. Go. I'm totally down with that. Be like, it's we're those types of people though, where we would walk in there and like the record would scratch, yeah. and they're like, we wouldn't fit in. What are these two? What are these two Yankees doing yeah. in the last resort? No, nope. nope, we would not fit in at all no no at all joiner and martin met her at the last resort and they drank more beer more beers they bullshitted they kind of got her to let her guard down they left just after midnight warnos didn't leave at all she spent her last night of freedom sleeping on an old car seat in the last resort mm. The following afternoon, Joyner and Martin were back at the last resort as Bucket and Drums talking Warnos. Bucket and Drums. <laughs> talking. I want to start a band called Bucket and Drums. I I, I could approve of that. I think that'd be oh, fun. Oh, God, I love I it. I think that'd be fun. I think the name of this episode should be Bucket and Drums. I'd be okay with that, too. I'd be like, Bucket and Drums, America's Boogie Woman. <laughs> huh. Okay, so Joyner and Martin were back at the last resort as their aliases, Bucket and Drums, talking Warnos up and wearing transmitters that kept the police in on everything that went on. They had planned on making their arrest later that night, but the last resort was gearing up for a barbecue and bikers would start pouring in at any second. The decision was made at the command post to go ahead and make the arrest. Joyner and Martin asked Warnos if she'd like to get cleaned up at their motel room. She accepted their offer and left the bar with them. Outside on the steps, Larry Horzeppa of the Marion County Sheriff's Office approached her and told her she was being arrested on the outstanding warrant for Lori Grady, Grody, whatever. No mention was made of the murders and no announcement was made to the media that a suspect had been arrested. Their caution was wise. As of yet, they had no murder weapon and no mm. Tyra Moore. It's a good thing they kept their mouth shut. Okay. Okay. True. True, true, true. On January 10th, Ty was located. She was living with her sister in Pittston. Pennsylvania. Jerry Thomas of Citrus County and Bruce Munster of Marion County flew to Scranton, Pennsylvania to interview her. She was read her rights, but not charged with anything. Munster made sure she knew what pre-jury was, swore her in, and sat back as she gave her statement. She had known about the murder since Eileen had come home with Richard, Mar Richard Mallory's Cadillac. She said that Eileen had openly confessed that she had killed the man that day, but Ty told her not to say anything else. I told her that I didn't want to hear about it. Ty told Munster and Thompson. And anytime she would come home after that and say certain things, tell me about where she got something. I'd say I didn't want to hear it. 
She had her suspicions, she admitted, but wanted to know as little as possible about Eileen's doings. The more she knew, she reasoned, the more compelled she would feel to report Eileen to the authorities. And she didn't want to do that. I was just scared, she said. She always said she never hurt me, but then you can never believe her. So I don't know what she would have or could have done. The next day, Ty accompanied Munster and Thompson Mm. back to Florida to assist in the investigation. A confession would make the case against Warnos virtually airtight and Munster and Thompson explained their, pra- explained their plan for obtaining one to tie on the flight. They would put her in a Daytona motel and have her make contact with Eileen in jail, saying she'd received money from her mother and came down to get the rest of her things. Their phone conversations would be taped and more was to tell Warnos that oh. authorities had been questioning her family, that she thought the Florida murders would be mistakenly pinned on her, her meaning Ty. Ty, yeah. Mm-hmm. Munster and Thompson hoped that out of loyalty to Moore, Warnos would confess. The first call from Warnos came on January 14th, 1991. She was still under the impression that she was only in jail for the Lori Grody weapons violation. When Moore broached her suspicions, Warnos reassured her, I'm only here for that concealed weapons charge in, in 86 and a bad traffic ticket, she said. And I tell you what, man, I read the newspaper and I wasn't one of those little suspects. <laughs> she was aware, though, that the jailhouse phone was monitored and made efforts to speak of the crimes in code words and to construct alibis. So she knew she was building herself up mm-hmm. to look in. Oh, yeah. I think somebody at work where you worked at said something that it looked like us, she said, and it isn't us. See, it's a case of mistaken identity. (laughs) For three days, the calls continued. Moore became more insistent that the police were after her and it became clear that Warnos knew uh, what was expected of her. She even voiced suspicion Mm. that Moore was not alone, that someone was there taping their conversation. But as time passed, she became less careful about what she said. She would not let Moore go down with her. Just go ahead and let them know and let them know what you need to know, what they want to know or anything, she said. And I will cover for you because you're innocent. I'm not going to let you go to jail. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. And the morning of January 16th, she did. Mm. So that's probably the nicest thing that she's ever done in her life. For real. Yeah. <laughs> you consider that quote unquote nice. Um you know, at least I mean, it got it to end at the very least, it did. right? I mean, geez. It did. yeah. Warnos came back to two main points over and over during her confession to Larry Horzeppa and Bruce Munster. First, she made it clear that Moore was not involved in any way in any of the murders. Additionally, she was super empathetic in her statement that nothing was her fault, not the murders, and not any circumstance that led her down that criminal path. That was her life. Mm. All the killings were done in self-defense, she claimed. (laughs) Each victim had either assaulted her, threatened her, or raped her. Her story seemed to develop as she told it. When she thought she'd said something incriminating, she would back up and retell that part, changing the details to suit her overall scenario. She'd been raped several times in the past few years, she claimed, and had had enough. When each of her victims became aggressive, she killed out of fear. Several times, Michael O'Neill, a public defender from the Volusia County Public Defender's Office, advised Warnos to stop talking, finally asking in exasperation, do you realize these guys are cops? (laughs) (laughs) 
Warnos answered, I know. And they wanted to hang me. And that's cool because maybe, man, I deserve it. I just want to get this over with. So Dang. very nonchalant. Doesn't even give a shit. Does not give a shit in the least bit. Jeez. An avalanche of book and movie authors poured into detectives, relatives, Ty, and even Warnos herself. Warno seemed to think that she would make millions from her story, not yet realizing that Florida had a law against criminals profiting in such a manner. Mm. She was all over the local and national media. She felt famous and she continued to talk about the crimes with anyone who would listen, including Volusia County jail employees. With each retelling, she refined her story, casting herself in a better light each time. Mm-hmm. Into this dumpster fire came Arlene Prale, a 44 year old quote-unquote born-again Christian who ran a horse breeding and boarding facility near Ocala. Listen to what this bitch does, okay? This, <laughs> this had okay. me LOLing, LOLing, LOLing. She had seen Warnos's picture in the newspaper and wrote her a letter. My name is Arlene Prale, she began. I'm a born-again. You're going to think I'm crazy, but Jesus told me to write to you. She provided her home telephone number, and on January 30, 30th, on January 30th, Warnos called her, collect, of course, for the first time. Almost immediately, Prale became her ardent defender and helpmate. Prale advised her that her public defenders were trying to profit from her story, mm. as, one, as was everyone else. Warnos asked for and got new attorneys. Prale spoke with the reporters, describing her relationship with Warnos to a ver- Vanity Fair reporter as a soul binding. We're like Jonathan and David in the Bible. It's as though part of me is trapped in jail with her. We always know what the other one is thinking and feeling. (laughs) Okay. She sounds like a peach. (laughs) She sounds like a fun time, fun time Saturday (laughs) night. That one. To another reporter, she said, if the world could know the real Eileen Warnos, there's not a jury that would convict her. I mean, doubt. (laughs) Doubt. (sighs) Gonna say false. Yes. Throughout 1991, Prale appeared on talk shows and in tabloids talking to anyone who would listen about what she perceived as Warno's true good nature. I thought everybody else was profiting, not her. <laughs> I mean, sarcasm alert. She, mm-hmm. she arranged interviews for Warno's with reporters that she thought would be sympathetic. And in this forum, Warno's continued to tell and embellish her fantastic story. Both Warnos and Prale empathized Warnos's troubled upbringing and both leveled accusations of corruption and complicity at anyone who was handy. The agents profiting the book and movie deals, the detectives, the attorneys, and especially Tyra Moore. <laughs> and just when it seemed things couldn't get any weirder, they did. Oh, they did. On November 22nd, 1991, Arlene Prale and her husband legally adopted Eileen Warnos. Stop your lying. Stop <laughs> it. I, I wish I was lying. I wish I was lying. Legally adopted her. <laughs> Prale, but Prale said that God had told her to. God's lying. Yeah. <laughs> He's fibbing. God did not, God did not want you to do that. He's not talking Just, to you. Mm-mm. He's not. Mm-mm. Sorry. Mm-mm. sorry warno's attorneys engineered a plea bargain to which warno's agreed in which she would plead to six charges and receive six consecutive life terms 
One state attorney, however, thought that she should receive the death penalty. So on January 14th, 1992, Warnos went to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. The evidence and witnesses against her were severely damaging. Mm-hmm. Dr. Arthur Boding, the medical examiner who had autopsies Mallory's body, stated that Mallory had taken between 10 and 20 agonizing minutes to die. Oh, God. Yeah. Tyra Moore testified that Warnos had not seemed overly upset, nervous, or drunk when she told her of killing Mallory. Twelve men told of encounters with her along Florida's highways over the years. Florida has a law known as the Williams rule that allows evidence relating to other crimes to be admitted if it helps to show a pattern. Mm -hmm. Because of the Williams rule, information regarding the other killings was presented to the jury and that didn't do her any good at all either. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Warno's claim of having killed in self-defense would have been a lot more believable had the jury known only of Mallory. Now, with the jury made aware of all the murders, self-defense seemed improbable at best. Mm-hmm. After the excerpts from her videotape confession were played, the self-defense claim seemed ridiculous. On the tape, Warnos appeared confident and not at all upset by the story she was telling. She made easy conversation with her interrogators and repeatedly told her public defender to be quiet. (laughs) Her image spoke from the screen. I took a life. I am willing to give up my life because I killed people. I deserve to die. I mean, at least she can admit it. (laughs) We love it. We love a self-aware murderer. (laughs) You know, you know, they're the better of all the kinds. Trisha Jenkins, one of Warnos's public defenders, did not want her client to testify and told her so. But of course, Eileen insisted on telling her story because she hasn't told it enough times already. By now, her account of Mallory's killing barely resembled the one she gave in her confession. Mallory had raped and sodomized her, she claimed, and had also tortured her. On cross-examination, prosecutor John Tanner obliterated any shred of credibility she may have had. As he brought to light all of her lies and inconsistencies, she became agitated and angry. Her attorneys repeatedly advised her not to answer questions, and she invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 25 times. I was going to say, she, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she could probably could have done that a lot more, mm -hmm. actually, instead of talking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was the defense's only witness, and when she left the stand, there was not much doubt about how her trial would end. On January 27th, Judge Uriel Blount handed the case over to the jury. They returned with their verdict less than two hours That's later. That's shocking. They found Warnos. No, it's not. I'm, I'm even surprised it lasted two hours. You would think seven mm-hmm. minutes. I don't know. They found Warnos guilty of first degree murder. And as they filed out of the courtroom, she exploded with rage, shouting, I'm innocent. I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America. <laughs> She's a treat. Yes, she is. Her outburst was still fresh in the minds of jurors as the penalty phase of her trial began the next day. She didn't think that through when she yelled that. Nope, not even a little bit. Expert witnesses for the defense testified that Warnos was mentally ill, that she suffered from borderline personality disorder, and that her tumultuous upbringing had had stunted and ruined her. Jenkins referred to her client as a damaged, primitive child as she pleaded with the jury to spare Warnos's life. But 
jurors neither forgot nor forgave the woman they'd come to know during the trial. With a unanimous verdict, they recommended that Judge Blount sentence her to electric chair. And so he did on January 31st. Warnos did not stand trial again. On March 31st, she pleaded no contest to the murders of Dick Humphreys, Troy Burris, and David Spears, saying she wanted to, quote unquote, get right with God. In a rambling statement to the court, she said, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but the others did not. They only began to start to. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She ended her monologue by turning to the assistant state attorney, Rick Ridgway, and hissing, I hope your wife and children get raped in the ass. She's a joy. Like, is really wow. really i mean i guess she figures she's sentenced to death what else what what else could happen I after guess. that on may 15th judge thomas swaya handed her three more death sentences she made an obscene gesture and muttered motherfucker <laughs> my god i'm sorry at this point it's just funny you know like she's just such a mess she's just such a mess yeah yeah in June, she pleaded guilty to the murder of Charles Carscadden, and in November, she received her fifth death sentence. In early February of 1993, she was sentenced to die after pleading guilty to the murder of Walter Gino Antonio. No charges were brought to her for the murder of Peter, C- Peter Sims, as they never found his body, mm-hmm. so they had nothing to go off yeah. of. For a time, there was speculation that Warnos might receive a new trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. New evidence showed that Mallory had served 10 years in prison in prison for sexual violence, and attorneys felt that jurors would have seen the case differently had they known this fact. Um, but no, no new trial happened. And like she's already has she already has how many death penalties? Like exactly taking one of them away, is that really going to change anything? No, but you're still gonna die. I, I mean. Yeah. Come on. Come on. If that was her only death sentence. Mm, right. But it's not. But it's not. On September 30th of 2002, Governor Jeb Bush granted a stay of execution and ordered a mental examination to, to determine whether Warnos was competent to be executed. Florida law mandates that an inmate cannot be executed unless she understands both why she has been sentenced to death and that execution results in death. hmm An examination by three psychiatrists appointed by the state concluded Warnos was competent to be executed and to, and the stay was lifted. Mm -hmm. I actually did not know that Florida had that law Mm -hmm. until I did this. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting um, for me to read and learn Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. I did this. Before Eileen's execution, a Ohio group called Florida Support filed a motion on her behalf to stay the execution, citing her extreme mental illness. Florida allows groups or individuals to file such motions on behalf of defendants as quote unquote next friend in capital post-conviction proceedings. This motion was denied. I mean, nice try, but valiant effort, my friends, but no. Yes. She's still going to die. On October 9th, 2002, Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. In her last statement, Warnos said, I just like to say. I love it. I know her last statement and I love it. Okay. (laughs) It's my fave. I just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all, I will be back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes, she will. 
<laughs> she was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m. Eileen Warnos was the 10th woman to be executed in the United States since 1976 and the second woman ever executed in Florida. And that, my friends, is the story of Eileen Warnos, America's boogie woman. Yeah. She also declined a last meal and only had a cup of coffee. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. Yes, she did. I was getting there, but you cut me. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Well, you, <laughs> no, said that's fine. The, you said that's the story. I figured you were done. No, I was going to do a little and it's on a side note, but that's mm-hmm. okay. That's okay. It was said. It was It was said. It's out there. That's all that matters. I have Eileen Warnos's last meal every morning when I wake up. <laughs> yeah, so do yeah. I. So do I. Um, but yeah, so I apologize that that was lengthy, but there was a lot of information. It was all kind of importante. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, she's another one who's, I mean, definitely considered a heavy hitter right so i mean there's so much information out there and so many so much detail about exactly what happened and what she did and the aftermath and whatnot so yep i definitely recommend people watching monster with oh uh, absolutely or at least they're on it's amazing yeah not american boogie woman that that apparently no do not watch that (laughs) i don't recommend you watching it unless you want a really good laugh Mm -hmm. that's the only that's the only caveat to that but um well, thanks, Jovi. Thank you for telling that story. I appreciate it. You're welcome. It's great. It was great. I try. I try. That was actually my first time doing a heavy hitter. So that was mm-hmm. interesting. But yeah, I figured, you know what? We haven't covered a female killer or serial killer. So it was time. It, it was, was time. time. It and was. it happened. Well, it did. It sure <laughs> did. It sure did. Well, my friends, thank you so much once again for joining us for Bed Crime Stories. We appreciate all that you do and all the love and support and um, all that stuff. All that jazz. Please, all that jazz. Please like, rate, review, subscribe uh, wherever you listen to our podcast. Tell a friend, uh, pass along the good word. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Bed Crime Stories. You can shoot us an email. Uh, you can DM us on Instagram or shoot us an email with any story suggestions. And that's Bed Crime Stories pod at gmail.com if you do decide to go the email route. Again, we thank you guys so much for all that you do. Um, you know, be kind to one another, please. Do good deeds, pay it forward. Um, We hope that you have a wonderful day wherever it is that you are. We will talk to you all next week. But until then, sweet sweet dreams. dreams. Take care, guys. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.